This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we're doing something unusual. We're going to air an interview that is not connected to a larger series. I'm going to be talking with Donald Kalshed, a Jungian analyst, about how he works with trauma, and especially the often repeated experience that traumatized people describe the feeling that something inside them has died. Dr. Donald Kalshed is a clinical psychologist and Jungian psychoanalyst who practices in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's written extensively on the subject of early trauma and its treatment. And his latest book is called Trauma and the Soul, A Psycho-Spiritual Approach to Human Development and Its Interruption. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Don. Thank you, Anne. It's nice to be here. So you work as a Jungian analyst and what does that mean specifically in terms of how you work with trauma? How does being a Jungian affect it? Well, you know, Jung was one of the first people back in the day, uh, back around the turn of the last century, to discover that parts of our experience, which we can't experience, that is to say, which we can't really entertain in consciousness, go somewhere and they go into an area of the mind called the unconscious and Freud of course was studying that same phenomenon but what Jung discovered is that that these parts of our experience which are are usually very powerful unbearable feelings which we can't entertain in consciousness just because they're too painful that they they get sent, as it were, to the unconscious and they reside there in the form of images when they come back to us through dreams or through fantasy or whatever. They usually come back in the form of personified images. In other words, if um, – well, let me give you a quick example that if you have a lot of painful experience that you cannot justify as a part of your self-image or your ideal self-image, it – it goes into what Jung called the shadow personality. It's like a dark twin that sort of grows up with us. And that shadow personality has an actual uh, kind of continuity in the unconscious. And it comes back to us in our dreams, often as a figure that carries those same qualities that we reject. So you may, for example, have, um, if you're a very sort of highly religious, rather tightly bound rational type, you may have a very instinctual, sexual, aggressive shadow personality that comes back in your dreams. And this will not be a comfortable return because you won't like this part of yourself and it will cause lots of trouble for you. Is that universal or is that specific to someone who suffered a lot of trauma? Well, here we, we get, have to get a little more technical. Um, there are different levels of defense in the human psyche. Um, certain experiences that are unpleasant get repressed. This is the way we talk in, in psychoanalytic language. They get repressed. They, they get pushed down into unconsciousness. But when they come back in a dream, we'll recognize them because, you know, we were conscious of their presence. We were just uncomfortable with them and they got repressed. In trauma... Trauma is by definition experience that we're given of reality that we can't really allow into consciousness at all. It's, and that's a fact about 
universe, universal fact really about human experience that we're given more in this life to experience than we can experience consciously. And when you say experience consciously, I mean, what a sense I mean is like it, you just it's unbearable. It's so unbearable that you can't tolerate that degree of grief or that degree of terror, say. Yeah. Let's what... imagine a little girl who is reaching out um, to her father. She's three years old and uh, the father exploits this gesture of affection and intimacy and sexually abuses the child. That's not experience that this little girl is going to be able to allow into her sense of herself, her narrative memory. She will have to dissociate that experience. And that's the, the word we use in place of repression. Dissociation is a more severe defense. The experience will disappear from her conscious memory. Uh, for example, she may – this is often happens in trauma – experiences when it's reported later, she may find herself on the ceiling looking down on the little body of herself being violated. And the part that's on the ceiling will be rational and maybe precociously mature and will watch this and understand it. Whereas the part down being raped or violated by the father or the stepfather or whatever uh, will will contain all the pain and and the enormous shame of this experience and the the dismay and the sense of betrayal and that part will go deep into the unconscious um, we would say into cold storage or into kind of trauma trance that's the part you referenced in your introduction when you said a part has died that child will exist in the unconscious as a kind of undead child or as a ghost child or a part of the self that isn't fully alive yet it can't be recovered yet you know it's i would say it's very common in my office for someone who has experienced trauma to tell me that they feel that part of them has died mm. in fact i i have come to hear that as a hallmark of trauma so they're aware of something that's right that has they're aware they may not have any access to that degree of pain there or they have a sense that it exists and they're terrified to feel it that's right but they do have a feeling that something has died Yes, it's a very poignant indicator, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that sense that some part of the self has died. Um, other people that I've seen over the years have, have used other metaphors. They've said, I know one young patient knew that she was broken, she said, um, when she was in a playground at age five and her 10-year-old stepbrother had been violating her repeatedly for for months and she realized that something was broken. She couldn't play like other children. She wasn't animated and alive like other kids and she knew that. Right. So then there's the grief of that. There's the grief of that that loss in a way. Well, we grieve it. We feel the grief of it as as people who are helping them process this, but they don't. And they sometimes they can't feel that for a long, long time. And that of course that's that's both the blessing and the curse of the dissociation. That's right. So what would happen if the person did not dissociate? Why is dissociation necessary? Well, you know, we can only speculate because we don't know exactly what would happen to somebody who didn't have dissociation available to them. The presumption is that there would be a catastrophe. There would be a disintegration of the personality. There would be complete annihilation of the capacity to carry on. So it would be kind of soul murder. 
Right. So in a way, dissociation is actually a form of self-soul preservation. Absolutely. It, and that's the whole idea that, that um, I tried to promulgate in this, in this book that I just wrote in 2013, Trauma and the Soul, is that fortunately the soul isn't murdered and survives in this form, whatever we want to call it, in a trance, undead, uh, the ghost child, the haunted self, um, some part of us goes into, you know, hyperspace. <laughs> so if I came to you with a dream, and a dream that was about, say, exactly this kind of figure, some kind of undead, buried child. Right. How do you work with someone with a dream? What, what is, how do you approach that? Well, let me give you an example of how this undead child came out in a, in a dream. This is a woman who was mildly depressed. She didn't know why, but her life didn't feel like it really had much to live for. And she hadn't remembered dreams for a long, long time. And as this process with me started, she started to feel sort of a rekindled hope for her life. She started to come alive again in different ways, partly because, you know, psychotherapy is is a situation where for the first time in maybe maybe in your whole life, somebody takes an interest in what you're feeling inside. And she just responded hugely to that and came alive. And her first dream, and I'll never forget this, was that she was shopping across the street from my office where the old hardware store used to be. And now it had been converted into a pet store. And she's walking up and down the, the aisles of this pet store and watching the little kittens and puppies playing in the newspapers and everything. And she stopped dead in her tracks. Oh my God, there was a baby in one of the cages. And the baby had its eyes glazed over as if it had been drugged. And she was appalled and shocked and outraged. And she looked around the store for the owner to complain about this. How could they have done this? And there in the corner stood a big burly man in a black t-shirt with his arms folded, looking like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And she knew immediately that she couldn't approach him. She was too frightened. So she left the store and tried not to think about it. Now, there you have a wonderful example of both the content that has been injured and retreated into the unconscious. This woman's mother was very critical of her all her life. And everything that my patient did uh, spontaneously as a little girl uh, somehow offended the mother or shamed the mother and the mother would come down on her so that, you know, she grew up in an atmosphere where she was afraid to be herself and especially her vital, spontaneous self. And a part of her had had to go into hiding and be dissociated. And that child came back in many, many different iterations in the dream work that we did after that. It often appeared, interestingly enough, as an animated core of herself, either as a child who is a dancing child or a very vital, active child, or as an animal. She had a beloved dog, and the dog frequently came up as sort of like the child or a horse. 
And as she got better, as her depression lifted and she found a new vehicle for her life, the child got stronger and, and didn't have to live in a cage anymore. And she became much more alive and spontaneous. It took a while. So, so far we've been talking about how you would work with a child. Mm -hmm. But how do you see that, that Jack Nicholson figure in the black T-shirt? How do you understand who he is? Um, do you see him as an actual perpetrator? Do you see him as a part of her? Generally, there's a figure in these dreams. When the child content comes, there's usually a, another figure. Sometimes it's not as dramatic as the Jack Nicholson figure. But I would interpret him as the aggressive energies in the psyche of this person who are now being employed to repress or oppress or imprison the child. Uh, it's the inner oppressor, the inner tyrant, the tyrannical inner intellectual defenses often uh, come up in this form. And this figure can be quite powerful and quite um, violent against the younger parts of the, of the patient. So I would interpret him as a personification of the dissociative energies that have, have imprisoned parts of her. So here you have this incredibly haunting dream. Mm -hmm. And especially I can imagine she, she may have felt haunted by the fact that she had to leave the baby in the cage. Yes. And with this sort of Shining-esque figure, what do you actually do as a clinician? What, what, how do you begin to work with that? Well, um, the first thing we, we need to remember is that dreams are made of affect images. That is to say that the images in them uh, capture and condense our feelings, affects, emotion. And they're not always emotions we know about. So what do we imagine that child contains? We don't know exactly, but first of all, we'd help the patient. This was her first dream, so she didn't know how to work with dreams yet. But I, I tried to interest her, as I remember, in the feelings in the dream. And in order to get into the feelings of the dream, you have to ask the patient to be sort of playful and imaginative. And for example, I might say to her, let's imagine what the baby's feeling. Because mm -hmm. I remember she said, oh, the poor baby, I feel so bad for it. And so I might ask her to expand about that feeling. What does she feel so badly about? What is, what is her sense of that um, pain, grief for the baby, sadness, anger for the person that's imprisoned the baby but what about the baby let's let's imagine what the baby might be feeling this is harder because you're asking her to to give her ego to the experience that's been dissociated so well the baby feels terrible well say more just tell me what what's it feeling in there well it it, it wants to go out and play it wants to go out and play, but it can't. It's full of longing. It's sad. It's, and then you you might say, "Is that a familiar feeling to, for you? Do you recognize that feeling anywhere?" And you know, eventually she might say, "Yeah, I do. I feel trapped in my life right now," or she might say, "That's the way I felt as a kid. I was afraid." I was afraid to come out of myself. I was afraid to say anything. I was afraid. I was afraid. What we're trying to do is help the psyche link to the dissociated affects, right, that have been unbearable to feel. 
I mean, it strikes me, Dawn, you know, in working with dreams, almost as the guide for the therapy in the way that I sense you do, you're always walking at that kind of edge of what is bearable and what isn't, what the person can bear to hold consciously and feel and what they have not until now been able to. That's right. That's absolutely right. What we have to keep reminding ourselves in this work is that Well, let me put it the way uh, one of my favorite, uh, he's now deceased, Paul Russell, um, an analyst from Boston used to say, he said, all psychopathology that comes to us for mending or healing is the scar tissue of the wound to the capacity to feel. So translation, scar tissue is defenses. The wound is what happens when your feelings are not received in an important attachment relationship. So what we're working with constantly is the injury to the capacity for feeling and we're trying to develop the capacity to hold, to process, to reflect on feelings. And um, the reason things are split off and sequestered in the unconscious is because the feelings were unbearable, as you said. My favorite definition of psychotherapy which I'm guessing you're familiar with from Elvin Semrad, is to acknowledge, bear, and put into perspective those feelings that until now have been unbearable. Oh, that's beautiful. No, I don't know that quote. I come back to it almost every day. Acknowledge, bear, and put into perspective. That single quote has been this sort of touchstone guidepost for my work for a long time. Well, uh, I couldn't think of a better one. And you know... The focus on feelings is beginning to be recognized now as the crucial element. You know, it's it's led a lot of people to realize that feelings are embodied. Feelings are in the body. So we have to pay attention to what people are experiencing in their bodies as they sit with us. Um, And there are lots of new ways of working that that just pay attention to that. Uh, But it's all... It's all about feelings. Right, right. So I noticed in our conversation, we're talking about feelings that have been unbearable in lots of different ways. They had to be dissociated. They had to be repressed. And I can imagine listening to this if I was someone who'd never been in therapy thinking, all right, you just sealed the deal. I'm never going to go to therapy. (laughs) Like, why would I want to do that? (laughs) Why would I want to feel something that's been unbearable? Thank you very much. And of course, and, you know, therapy is expensive. Not everyone has access to therapists. For someone who has suffered trauma or extreme neglect as a child, if they are not ever going to go to therapy, is there hope for them, for them to heal it in other ways? What, what, What can they do? Of course, there's hope for them. I mean, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> uh, Therapy is not the only medium for healing of trauma. There's partial healing in all kinds of different ways. People are partially healed through art, through music, through poetry, because these are mediums for feelings. And anything that is evokes theater films i mean contemporary films i've been doing a lot of conferences lately using films because they get to feelings so deeply and so profoundly anything that helps us feel feelings that have been locked away or dissociated are healing for for trauma the next stage though of healing uh beyond self-healing or self-cure is healing through relationship and that can happen in any loving 
uh, more or less conscious relationship, which are hard to find. Uh, I'm sure your listeners would agree with this. <laughs> yeah. You know, hard to find relationships in which you can really unpack and unload all the the stuff inside you and not uh, push people away or or be misunderstood or offend people or whatever, um, which is why therapy works because it's a, you know, it's a sort of separate species of relationship in which uh, people can talk about things that they often can't process with other people in normal relationships. But any relationship can heal trauma, especially any relationship that's relatively conscious and open where you can really be received by another person and and the other person tries to understand and doesn't have a lot of personal access to grind, um, doesn't shame you, um, helps you just say what you need to say about your inner life and helps you hold it and receive it. So there's all kinds of ways of healing traumatic wounding. Therapy is just uh, a privileged way of doing it because it... um, it privileges feelings and it privileges non-judgment of feelings. So that's the thing that we need most of all is, is freedom from judgment about what we've experienced. So this idea of judgment actually brings up its, its flip side, which is this, the idea of innocence. Yeah. And it's something I know you've written a lot about. Um, you know, when, when you've been working with people with trauma histories who have these dreams of suffering children... And you write that working with that child is where not only the aliveness is, but it's about reclaiming the quality of innocence. And tell me, what it, what is it about innocence that's so important to us? Well, um, I wish I knew. Um, you know, it's a mystery. Uh, it, there's something, if, if you work with people who have suffered these early woundings as kids, there's something so compelling to all of us, I think, about the suffering of innocent children or innocent animals, you know. I mean, there's just something that so violates our sense of rightness or justice or humanity um, when we encounter this stuff. A guy by the name of James Grotstein, who's another analyst, once said that innocence is the central element in our spiritual life. That got my attention because it feels to me like there's something sort of like the divine spark of a person that comes into this world and is represented by the innocent child in us that is sort of guileless, unprotected, and purely expressive of him or herself. Now, innocence is a is a sort of a totalistic category, right? It's we think of innocence as purity, pristine, something pristine and uncontaminated. But innocence has to acquire experience, right? If any of us are going to grow, and experience means that innocence will have to suffer. So, in my book, I talk about the importance of titratable doses of suffering uh, so that innocence gains experience. Uh, In other words, something of your God-given right to be here, your, your, your divine spark stays intact throughout your life. It doesn't get extinguished, annihilated, which is what trauma threatens to do. 
but you also have to grow into a mature human being who can suffer uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? I mean, we all we all have to learn how to suffer reality, and this means hurt feelings. It means tragedy. It means uh, letting our heart break because there's something about human life that's heartbreaking for everyone. For everyone. In a few weeks, we're going to be starting a new series on the show about PTSD among veterans, particularly women veterans. And in that series, we're going to be looking at the impact of trauma that happens to adults and who also experience dissociation, much as you've described. How does adult trauma differ from the kinds of trauma that you're describing that happened to young children? Well, um, the same dissociative mechanisms are intact in all of us. Uh, so if we have adult trauma like a huge catastrophe like the World Trade Center disaster or, or combat uh, experiences of, um, that are unbearable, we will dissociate in the same way that a child does. Um, what we find in terms of, of adult trauma is that if there's a previous history of childhood trauma, in other words, if that dissociative process has already occurred in, in very young childhood so that experiences were unbearable when the ego was immature, then later trauma is going to be far more complicated and difficult to resolve than if the person has a reasonably intact childhood and then suffers adult trauma in later life. Um, for example, after the World Trade Center disaster, they discovered that people with an early trauma history, the trauma of the World Trade Center stayed with them far longer and was much more complicated to resolve than, than those who had reasonably safe and intact childhoods and and suffered this as a disaster in adult life. Hmm. Don, I'm going to have to stop now. I want to thank you so much. I, I find myself, as you've been talking about the people you work with and telling the story of their dreams, so moved by not only the suffering that they endured that you're describing for us, but also, in a way, the gift of the dream. How, hmm. how lucky we are that we dream. Yes, that's really true. What an extraordinary thing it is, really, that the psyche is always working toward our healing in, in some way, however veiled it may seem. That's right. The dreams are constantly trying to bring together pieces of experience that uh, have been separated. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing to help us all, in some ways, benefit more from the dreams that we do have. You're very welcome. I've, I've enjoyed the interview, so thank you. So I want to direct people to Donald Kalshed's most recent book, Trauma and the Soul, A Psycho-Spiritual Approach to Human Development and Its Interruption, but also to say that Don is coming to Maine. And so if you would like to learn more from him, you can go to the MaineYoungCenter.org website where you can see that he's going to be lecturing at Maine Medical Center on Friday, April 29th from 7 to 9. And he's also going to be offering a day-long workshop on the following Saturday, April 30th at the Portland Friends Meeting House, but I think probably you should register through the Maine Young Center. If you like the show and you want to learn more about trauma, we'll be starting a new series soon, most likely toward the end of April, about PTSD among women veterans. We also have a whole series on trauma that aired in the winter of 2010 to 2011, which you can find along with all of our past shows at safespaceradio.com.
While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.